Guys, I just want to be honest with you this morning. I know we have guests and so on and so forth, but uh, I just want to be real. I'm distracted. And I'm, I'm distracted because one of the reasons that I got into ministry was because I wanted to see men and women not just believe in the idea of God, but trust him and follow him, to chase after him, to be changed by him, to look more like him. And I believe the scriptures actually teach what that looks like and how we can put into ap application or put into action what it means to follow Jesus. But I just got to be real, I'm distracted this morning. I'm distracted because, just never do this, I've gotten multiple texts from people, hey, we're on our way, but we decided not to come. And it's like, I don't need to be thinking about that before church, before I teach. And I'm distracted because I had someone that wanted to tell me everything I did wrong in my sermon after first service. And I'm distracted because things are, uh, my family's going great, we are healthy by God's grace, but there are things kind of underlying as far as financials and things like that that are hard. I'm distracted because I think God has put his spirit in people and people aren't willing to actually do what he says and so they're actually saying no to what God is telling them to do. I'm distracted by the fact that we get to come onto this campus and we get to worship God, but sometimes our hearts are just, well, I gotta do this rather than I want to do this. And so this morning, I just need to pray for us. I, I don't care if this is in the video or the podcast or whatever, this kind of family time, so if you're a guest, <laughs> welcome. But I just, I just need to pray. So would you close your eyes? Would you bow your head? Jesus, you are worthy of our praise. You are worthy to be exalted above anything and everything. God, don't allow me to miss what you're teaching me this morning. Don't allow any of us to miss what you want to teach us this morning. And God, if I offend, would you convict? If I say things that are not of you, Lord, would you allow those to fall on deaf ears? God, I just want to cry if I'm honest. Because I think it wasn't until that song that I started to realize the pressure and the responsibility on my shoulders. So God, I want to be real with you in front of brothers and sisters and guests. God, I'm not worthy to proclaim your name and yet you've still called me to it. And so, God, as we open your word, would you move? Would you move mightily? Would you change hearts? Would we not just read words on a page, but would we be where you were? God, may inflection of my voice not motivate people. May your Holy Spirit motivate people. God, you are worthy of our love. You are worthy of our obedience. God, may we not leave this place without being equipped to obey you more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's good to be back with you guys in the book of John. Last week we celebrated Easter, and I want to remind you once again, Jesus is as alive today as he was on the third day. Amen? Oh, by the way, I need you to talk back. Because of what I just prayed, like I need... I need, uh, not really energy, it's not like crystals or anything, but like I need y'all to talk back. And I know how white people say amen, they just take notes. So I need some people to, to be a little bit louder, and I, if it's outside of your comfort zone, tough. Because this is literally one of the best texts in all of scripture. 
And so I want us to spend time in this, looking at what Jesus says to Nicodemus. John chapter 3 is where we're going to start. We're going to be in, we're going to start in verse 1, we're going to go to 15, we're going to read a little, talk a little, read a little, talk a little, and people hopefully will be justified by God's grace, and people will leave this place going, I'm never going back there, and some people are going to be like, I can't wait to come back. But we'll allow God to work out the details. Verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. This, this specific verse, John is the author of it. It's not John the Baptist. It's John the disciple whom Jesus loved who writes the book of John. And he talks about this encounter with Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a teacher, an observer of the law. And this Pharisee came from, uh, the word Pharisee came from the Hebrew word which meant to separate. Doesn't that make sense if you're familiar with what Pharisees do in the scriptures? They were known as the separate ones that held very, very tightly to their religion and to keeping the Mosaic law, to keeping the traditions and rituals that had become their justification to the God that they had misunderstood from the Hebrew scriptures. Nicodemus was a Greek name, which meant victor over the people. So much so that he had the honor of being a part of the Jewish ruling, ruling council, the Sanhedrin, which were the top dogs of Jewish men in particular that would memorize the first five books of the Old Testament especially. And he kept a very pious religion that was about purity so others that were in the Jewish faith could see that he was very good at keeping the law. Verse 2, he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Nicodemus decides to go to Jesus at night, probably because he doesn't want to expose himself to other Pharisees and other religious people because he was going to come to Jesus and question him because he was convinced that Jesus had come from God. He also seemed to be captivated by Jesus' miracles because he uses the term we, which could mean a lot of different groups of people, but I think he means the other Pharisees and the other scribes that would write down the scriptures. In particular, Pharisees and scribes, they would witness these miracles of Jesus and they would see the things that he'd performed. They had heard the reputation about what Jesus could do and maybe they thought, finally, the Messiah has come. But he didn't really check the boxes of what the Messiahs assume, or what the Pharisees assume the Messiah would look like. In fact, up until this point, there had been 400 years of quiet from God. No prophets sent, no miracles performed, just a pretty silent season of people really attempting to earn their way to God. And then this rabbi, this teacher, this miracle maker shows up on the scene from Nazareth of all places. Can anything good come out of Valviso? Huh? Huh? And people start to hear about the following of, of Jesus, that all these people were following him, and they asked that Jesus had gone to these people and asked them to follow him. And these were not the cream of the crop. These were not varsity followers of Jesus. These were just random people that really didn't memorize the law very well. And Jesus told them, come follow me. 
And I bet you these Pharisees, including Nicodemus, who he was representing the other Pharisees, I bet you he had heard the story about the sky opening up and God the Father speaking and the Holy Spirit coming down, which looked like a dove and rested on the Son, Jesus. People had talked about the fact that they had heard God's voice and said, this is my Son, whom I'm well pleased. They probably knew the story about Mary and how she was at a wedding and she was being asked to make sure that the hospitality was going well. And she went to her son and Jesus turned water into wine. They had probably heard the reputation of the fact that Jesus had thrown out some merchants in front of the temple because they were trying to sell their weak sauce toys and stuff to try to make profit off of God's name. And we see Jesus exercising the most supernatural amount of crowd control that's ever been seen in history. They probably knew this reputation. They probably heard these things. And it was a reputation that had preceded Jesus that many of the Pharisees and common people had heard about. So Nick at night, that's who this is, is telling Jesus that surely he had come from God. And to be honest, based on this reputation, that's not that far-fetched. And he shows just a bit of belief, doesn't he? But what we're about to see is that not all belief is saving belief. Verse 3. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Okay. Is it just me or Nicodemus and Jesus having two separate conversations here? Like this escalated pretty quickly. He's like, surely you're from God. You can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. What? Right? Like, that's how this conversation was going. And Nicodemus is affirming Jesus, but Jesus saw what Nicodemus needed. In fact, through the other texts that we've read and studied, we've seen that Jesus doesn't just know people. He knows their thoughts and he knows their hearts. So while Nicodemus may have been beating around the bush, not really wanting to bring up what was happening... Jesus knew his heart and answered the question that he hadn't asked yet. Now, you've heard me say this, if you've heard my teaching before, I highly recommend as Christians that we don't answer questions that no one's asked, right? That's one of the most socially taboo things you should do because people talk about you after you do that, just so you know. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, you do that, okay? But Jesus answers a question that many people are afraid to ask. So if you can read someone's mind, feel free to answer the question they haven't asked. But really, he's answering this question. He thinks Nicodemus is asking, how do I get to heaven? Which, to be honest, is the wrong question. Unless you understand what heaven truly is. So let me define it real fast. Heaven is where God is. Period. That's what heaven is. It's where God is. It is the place where you and I have been invited to spend eternity with God in his presence without any chasm because of sin, without anything stopping us from being right face-to-face -face with God in a perfect relationship, and he adopts us into the kingdom of God. He places us in the heavenly realms as we studied in Ephesians because simply of what big brother Jesus has done for us. So Jesus says, unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. And if you read the different gospels, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are four different uh, explanations of Jesus' earthly ministry and what he did and his resurrection. But when you read Matthew, what you notice is that Matthew never calls it the kingdom of God. 
He always calls it the kingdom of heaven because there was this reverence to God that didn't want to say God's name, didn't want to say Yahweh. And so what I want us to understand is simply in this conversation, we have to widen our scope to what Jesus is talking about because Nicodemus is thinking about a future physical destination and the religious constantly think about the physical while Jesus constantly speaks of the eternal. The kingdom of God is not a place, it's a person. Spoiler alert, Asgard is not a place, it's a person. Kind of taking it from that. Seven of you get that. All right, that's cool. And it's knowing and being known by God through his only son, Jesus Christ. That's what the kingdom of God exhibits. That's what the kingdom of God is. It's to be under a king who is Jesus, the king of my heart. And it's only by knowing him and being, knowing him and being known by him that we are included in the kingdom of God. And when we do, we're included in Christ. We are adopted by God and we become his people. Oh, I want to be God's people. We become his chosen people, his church, his bride. And that is where the kingdom of God resides. It is not a building, it's a people. Not the steeple, but the people. Verse 4. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. I love this question. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Can we just be clear? This is literally the most disgusting question in scripture. Just calling that out. But if you're thinking Jesus is speaking physically, this is a pretty fair response, don't you think? But it also shows that Nicodemus just doesn't get it. And that's easy for us to say, right? We're after the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. You and I know the scriptures. You and I possibly have met Jesus. But ironically, Nicodemus had met Jesus here. And Nicodemus is a teacher of the law. But his religious nature kept him in the dark about who Jesus really is and what Jesus came to accomplish. Isn't that some of us? Our religious nature keeps us from actually believing that Jesus is enough, that we have to work our way to him, that we have to do certain things to have love from him. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless... And then he says, they are born of water and the Spirit, capital S. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless. If I am Nicodemus, and I am convinced that Jesus is special, and I am listening pretty intently to what he's about to say, and so I hope you don't miss it. Because the thing is, the Nicodemus, like some of us, could put in all this time. We could put in all this effort doing what we think we ought to do to earn salvation and realize at the end of our lives, it was all in vain. That's scary, isn't it? But it's a reality. And not just to people of other faiths, people that would self-proclaim themselves as Christ followers. Because every once in a while, we can miss it. That's one of the reasons we attempt to just open the Bible and describe what it says. We just open it and we read it and we talk about it and we look at the original language and we look at who they're talking to, but we don't want to tell you life hacks. We don't want to tell you what to do. We want God to speak to you. 
And we want you to put into practice what he tells you to do, because if you obey me, you're not growing spiritually. But if you obey him, I promise you, you will. We don't want you to clean yourself up. We don't want you to be a better person. Ha, what a waste. We want you to be born again. So Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, in other words, listen up. Look at me. What I'm about to say, this is not a lie. Listen, Nicodemus, it is imperative that you listen and understand what I'm about to say. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. Do you know that debates, factions, denominations, and even cults have been created over this one verse and how people interpret it? Crazy, right? Christians don't agree? But here are the three interpretations that people tend to have when it comes to this verse. One is wrong, and the two other kind of sound the same, so they're pretty similar, so I would say they're both right. Here are the three interpretations. First one, it's not, that's not consistent with Scripture. That when Jesus says, in order to be born again, you must be born of water and of spirit, he was talking about baptism. That you must be baptized, and then you must be born of the spirit. So the water in this idea symbolizes baptism. So what he's saying is you have to be baptized, you have to be saved by baptism and the Spirit. Or that the Spirit only comes through baptism. And I get why some people believe this. In fact, I've had long conversations at my doorstep about this. And in verse 37 of Acts chapter 2, it'll be up on the screen. Let me point you to Pentecost. Where Peter gets up, Peter's the guy who uh, constantly stuck his foot in his mouth, so he gives me a lot of hope, and he was following Jesus, and he denied Christ three times, and yet he gets up at Pentecost and preaches the least seeker-sensitive sermon ever, and people repent. It's amazing. And he said, when people heard this, this is in verse 37, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, go to church. Oh, Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, this moment in Scripture seems to affirm this interpretation that maybe baptism is required to be saved. Peter starts with repent, which means to change direction, means to change your mind. It means that you're walking this way, and then eventually you change direction, spiritually, physically, intellectually, and you say, no, not my way, but his way. It is a 180. It's not a five-degree turn, and it's not a 360. It is a 180. And he says, repent and be baptized. And just a few weeks ago, if you were here, we had five baptisms of people that wanted to declare with their lives that they were following Jesus. Yeah. And they made public declarations of what they already believed inwardly. But here's what I'm here to tell you. They were not saved when they got in the, they were not saved by the water. They were saved way before they got in the water because I asked good questions. Sorry. So if you've repented, I think the natural succession would then be to be baptized after you've repented. So the question is not, should you be baptized to be saved? It is, if you've truly repented, why wouldn't you be baptized? 
Oh, I don't like water. Well, tough. Take a bath. My favorite excuse, sorry, I'm going to talk about college kids. My favorite excuse of young people that go, I don't like to read the Bible, is they say, well, then get off Facebook because you read it all day. And so you could also read the Bible instead of read Facebook. And so what happens is we start to see how many excuses people have to actually obeying God. You ever notice that? We don't want to do what God says. We want to come up with some excuse. So that's the first interpretation. That you were saved through the water of baptism, through the action, through work. But here's the thing. We are not saved by what we do. We are saved by what Christ has done. So we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And if someone doesn't agree with you on that, they're not your brother or sister in the faith. I mean, we're getting brass tacks simplistic. You are saved by by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Because baptism is a symbol But if you need it in order to be saved, it's a work. The problem with the baptism interpretation is also that Jesus says born of water. Which if we follow the explanation of what born means, can we just be honest here? Your first birth, you had nothing to do with. Anyone want to argue with that? You did not, your hands were not involved because your hands did not exist. It was out of your hands. And baptism in a biblical sense is a symbol chosen to reflect what is believed inwardly. But it was a command. So if water doesn't represent baptism in this verse, what does Jesus mean? The two other interpretations, they don't seem to be in any conflict with one another. Many would say that by the water, Jesus meant the physical birth. And then the spirit, he meant the spiritual birth, which is true. You got to first be born physically, right? And then you have to be reborn, you have to be regenerate, you have to be born again through the spiritual birth, through the spirit. And you cannot see the kingdom if you weren't first physically born and then spiritually born. But I think it's deeper than that, church. Many theologians would say that by water, Jesus meant what the spirit does, which is he cleanses us. So you cannot see or enter or be born into the kingdom of God unless you are cleansed by the Holy Spirit. Because you know what? You and I suck without the Holy Spirit. Ask my wife. She knows. Not about you, about me. (laughs) So you must receive the Holy Spirit, which is a gift, Peter says. And he's the one that regenerates you. That's the point. What do I mean by regenerate? The same thing Jesus means when he says born again. See, there are a ton of uh, Christianese words that we use when when we talk about this. Here's some of them. You've used them. You ready? Oh, that's when I was saved. Huh? That's when I was justified. What? That's when I was born again. All right, probably not as much in this service, the second service. And I didn't exist in the 70s, just telling you. But in the 70s, there were the born againers. Anyone with the bracelets? Huh? What would Jesus do? All right, come on, preach it. Yeah. All right, that was just for four of you. But that you're saved, that you're justified, that you're born again, that you're regenerate, that you are a new creation, that you are made alive, that you've received Christ, that you've been included in Christ. Let's get simple, that you become a Christian. And all of these terms essentially mean the same thing, but depending on which one you're using, there is a level of depth to how we can understand this truth that God is the one who does it. I believe this may be one of the most important passages in all of Scripture. 
because this discussion between Jesus and Nicodemus is one of the more clear examples of what has to take place for you to be included in Christ. And Jesus, in this discussion, he uses the term born again. He talks about birth five times in just a few sentences. So for you nerds who love Greek, born again translates to from above. It means you're born again from above. It means that you're made new from above. So here's the question I want every single one of us to just think about, and I'm going to pause dramatically. Here's the one question I want us to think about. Why did God use the analogy of birth to represent salvation? Pause. Why did God use the analogy of birth to represent salvation? I would contend that he wanted to use an analogy that left no room or interpretation for human effort. Think about that for a second. And even though many people struggle with this idea that God did all the work in salvation, you didn't accept him, he accepted you. He did all the work. So how can one be saved by God if they think they contributed to the saving? Oh, I did it. In fact, there's tons of scripture, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that wrecked that idea. See, God did it all. You sinned against him, and he paid the ransom because of your sin. He paid it all, and all. So think of it this way. Say you come to me, and you go, Tim, I want to, you know, I appreciate your teaching. You're a good dude. I, I'm for you. Uh, here's a $100 gift card to Pete's. Yes, holier than Starbucks. Amen. And I take this card, and I'm super excited, but I know you. And so I'm like, ah, you know, that's a lot of money for you to put into a gift card. And so I start to wrestle with the idea of, you know what, I don't want to accept this. And you go, no, it's a gift. You need to accept it. You need to receive it. And I go, yeah, but I know where you are financially. So uh, could I, I don't know, could I give you 50 bucks? Could I give you some money for this gift so it's not as bad for you? And you go, oh, well, that'd be kind of nice. I got to pay my rent. That's, that's kind of nice. Okay, all right. I'll take the 50 bucks, and I give you the 50 bucks. Here's the thing. It's no longer a gift. It's a discount. And God does not give us a discount on eternity. He gives us salvation through Christ and being included in him. So if you think about this idea of being born again, let's just go to the American standard contribution of what it looks like regarding being born or birthdays. Because I think it's a little misleading when we celebrate in America birthdays. Think about it. We celebrate your birth. We say happy birthday. We say congratulations. But you didn't do anything. You guys notice that? We should send your parents a card. Not you. You just didn't get dead for 365 days. Congrats. But I don't want you to miss this. New birth, spiritual birth, happens to us, not by us. I'm going to ask for your takeaways later. That's a good one. Spiritual birth happens to us, not by us. Verse 6. Jesus continues. He says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. 
Jesus uses this contrasting language of flesh and spirit because it shows the contrast from our physical birth versus our spiritual birth. And we did nothing to be physically born. And when we are born, we are not born with an internal good nature. I'm sorry if you think people are inherently good, but they're not without the Holy Spirit. And you know why I believe that? Because of the Bible. And I'm going to allow the Bible to trump or supersede, I won't say trump, supersede culture. Because culture wants you to think that everyone's inherently good, but we're not without the Spirit of God inside of us, changing us, regenerating us, helping us be reborn and reset to be included in Christ. And it is the Spirit that conceives a purity in us. Anyone struggling with sin this week? (laughs) All right fires. Um, You cannot clean yourself up to be good enough to come to God. But Christ came and did for you what you could not do for yourself. And he cleans you up via his spirit. He regenerates us. So I'm going to quote John Calvin. Woo! Freak out. And I'm going to quote John Calvin. But I love in his commentary about this passage what he said. Here's what he said. The word spirit is used here in two senses. Namely for grace, and then the effects of grace. For in the first place, Christ informs us that the Spirit of God is the only author of a pure and upright nature. And afterwards, he states that we are spiritual because we have been renewed by his power. Preach it, Calvin. And here's the thing. This is not a New Testament idea. Jesus is not talking to Nicodemus about something that Nicodemus shouldn't have understood. This is an Old Testament. All of this book is connected. So anyone that goes, I'm a New Testament Christian, is a moron. This whole book is about one person. It's about Jesus and our need for him. And so God spoke to Israel through the prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. And he let them know through God that God made this known through Ezekiel that God would give them a new heart and give them a new spirit and it isn't something that they earned but it was something that they received so you don't have to turn there it'll be up on the screen but Ezekiel chapter 36 here's what God says through Ezekiel for I will take you out of the nations and I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean I will cleanse you from all your impurities And from all your idols, thank you, Jesus. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. Hallelujah. So God puts a new heart in us and he puts a new spirit in us to make us truly and biblically spiritual i hear people all the time oh i'm spiritual i'm just not religious what not biblically you're not and and here's the thing let me real talk because i'm gonna start now there are people in your life you think will never turn to christ don't neuter my god Because my God took a heart of stone in me, and he changed me, and he's changed you. 
And he says he'll do it. And so you, be, you have the most godly example you possibly can have. And when you screw up, and I taught this to some college kids yesterday, when you screw up, don't be quick to hide it like a Pharisee. Be quick to own it and confess it. And God will use that to show people that being in Christ is different. If we act just like the world, people probably think they're Christians because they act just like us if we're acting just like the world. And we need to look different because he gave you his spirit. Verse 7. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again, Jesus says to Nicodemus. You, Nicodemus, should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Nicodemus, a teacher of the law, should not be surprised that there is this huge chasm and difference between creator and creation, between God and man. And there was no amount of washing themselves or cleaning themselves up that could make them good enough. God had to intervene, and since the beginning, he's been intervening in his creation. Verse 8, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going, so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Jesus uses another analogy. First it was about birth, now it's about the wind blowing to help Nicodemus and to help you and to help me understand that this is not something that can be controlled. The Holy Spirit moves where he wants to move. You can't put God in a Petri dish, church. And there is no way to control or make him do what you'd like. You can have the best gospel presentation on earth. You can have someone playing piano behind you, making you sound so spiritual. You can can say everything correctly and not have any misspeaking, and that still doesn't mean someone's going to come to Christ. See, the wind blows where it wants. Such is the Spirit of God as well. And yet... The work of Christ, the Holy Spirit's work can be identified, you know what? Through fruit. Through the results of God intervening can actually be quantified. But for many of us, we just don't realize it. Because here's the thing, if you're in Christ, you're growing. Even physically, you're growing. Did you know that? Even some of you that are getting smaller, your nose and ears still grow. That's super weird, but it's true. Because if you're not growing, what are you? Dead. And so as followers of Christ, we are growing. And so that's the effect of the Holy Spirit working in us. In fact, Billy Graham said it this way, can you see God? You haven't seen him. I've never seen the wind. I see the effects of the wind, but I've never seen the wind. That's the same as the Spirit. Verse 9. Nicodemus, great response. What? How can this be? You notice that Nicodemus just literally is not picking up what Jesus is putting down. Even though it's obvious, at least to us. And knowing that Jesus knows everyone's heart and minds, he probably isn't surprised by Nicodemus. But here's the big difference between me and Jesus. I would be super frustrated. Anyone else? Don't teach our kids then. But he's not frustrated because Jesus is the personification of the fruit of the Spirit. Fully patient, fully self-controlled. But I kind of look at this language and wonder if Nicodemus was patronizing Jesus. But I think, honestly, Nicodemus really wanted to understand. He just couldn't. Because of what he had learned to be of first importance. That cleaning yourself up was the point. Keeping the law was the point. Nicodemus had been taught to clean himself up, to keep the law. And yet here comes Jesus. 
and don't miss this. Here comes Jesus. Nicodemus probably in his 50s, 60s, or 70s. He's an older man. He had kept the law. He'd done everything right. And yet Jesus comes along and he says, hey, everything you've ever done doesn't count. Could you imagine? <laughs> Here's my point. Your religious activity does not regenerate you. Only faith expressed in Christ does. Verse 10. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. Some of this applied to the fact as a Pharisee, he should have known that Jesus fulfilled what the Old Testament had spoken about. He should have seen what Jesus had done and the signs that he had performed. And people should have then been checking boxes going, yep, read that in, in Joel, read that in, oh man, that's in Daniel. Whoa, he calls himself the son of man. They should have seen it. But religious people just can't see it. Verse 11. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people, woo-wee, do not accept our testimony. All right, first off, never say you people in here, all right? But you people do not accept our testimony. See, Jesus was raining down judgment on Israel, on the nation, because they refused to believe what was handed to them. So let me speak to those of you who have grown up in the church but want nothing to do with Jesus. The faith has been handed to you, but you're refusing it. Verse 12, I've spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? I wonder if this is kind of what Jesus was saying. I've attempted to make it clear to you in earthly terms, and yet you cannot understand. How would you possibly understand spiritually deep things, right? Oh, I don't want to be at that church. I'm not fed. I love that one. That's my favorite. I think this is where too many people want to understand spiritually heavy things that are technically calculus for kindergartners. Because Nicodemus couldn't grasp the gospel, the rest of it was falling on deaf ears. Let me, let me make it really clear. If the gospel doesn't give you joy, don't expect to understand the deeper things. Because you're just a Pharisee. Woo, that's good. That wasn't in my notes. I, I mean, it was on that note. But anyway, verse 13. I'll, I'll just keep going. Verse 13. No, no, actually, I'm going to go back to that. The gospel, the good news that Christ did for you, which you couldn't do for yourself. He who knew no sin became sin so that you could become the righteousness of God. He who died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, who was buried and who was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, who adopts us into the kingdom of God. That is the point. I don't care if you know what dirty rags is in Greek. I just cussed those of you who didn't realize from the Bible. Uh, I care that you understand the gospel. I care that the gospel informs your life. I care that you love Jesus, not the church, because of the church, but you love Jesus. We don't have smoke machines. I'm not even on the, on the stage because I'd just get in the way. We're not trying to entertain you. We're equipping you to obey Jesus. That's why we exist. Verse 13, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man. So Jesus starts to use this title again. He's the son of man. This is coming from the book of Daniel. If you haven't read Daniel, be ready to have your mind blown. 
And Jesus is testifying that he is the only to ascend to heaven. So when he speaks of heavenly things, it's not a guess. It's not an interpretation. It is from first-hand knowledge. If Jesus can defeat death, I'm with him because I don't want to get dead. Anyone else? And then he continues, verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So this is, he's quoting Exodus, he's quoting Moses, or I'm sorry, well, he's quoting Moses in Numbers as well. And he's talking about this mass exodus of these Israelites that were leaving Egypt, that were enslaved, and then they started whining about the food they were getting. And they started to forget all the things that God had done, and God had given them all these markers to remind them, these Ebenezers and these things to show them, I am faithful and I am your Lord. You know what they did? They whined at him. So glad that doesn't happen anymore. And yet Jesus quotes this right before the most popular verse in the Bible. And you know the only reason you know that verse? Because a dude with a, with a rainbow afro stands at baseball and football games with a sign that says John 3.16. But the problem with this is that verse is so important, but if you don't know the context, you're just talking. So just as Moses was lifted up, the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. See, these Israelites got bit by a snake. And let me just be clear about this. It was a poisonous snake, and God allowed it to happen. All right? That's my God. He allows bad things to happen. Just going to let you know. Spoiler alert. And yet, God decided to tell Moses, build this serpent out of bronze and make it this statue and have that statue be higher than everything else so the Israelites who have been bitten by the snake can look to it and they will live. Scientifically, this makes no sense. But it really did make faith tangible, didn't it? It really was a precursor to what was about to happen. It was foreshadowing to the fact that anyone who would look to the exalted Christ, the one on the cross, the one who came out of the empty tomb, the one who is at the Father's right hand, if we would look to him, we would have life. Hallelujah. So it didn't make scientific sense. It made faith tangible. And just like the Israelites who looked to this exalted figure, they found eternal life in him. So at the cost of distracting you, I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. But I'm going to ask you a question as they come up, and I want you to think about this. Have you been born again? Not, are you a Christian? Have you been born again? Have you been regenerate? Have you received the gift of the Holy Spirit? Let me, let me make it tangible for those of us who don't get this. Have we repented? I didn't say have we believed. The demons believe and shudder. Have we repented? Have we changed direction and said, Lord, not my way, but your way? Here's my fear. Let me just, I sent some real talk today. My fear is that I would preach to you every week and your heart would be harder and harder and harder and you would think you were justified because of your attendance or the fact that you don't use swear words, that you don't make up. Have you been born again? Have you received the Holy Spirit? Have you repented? There is a pride, especially in those of us who have been in the faith for a long time, that refuse to say, oh, you know what, I never repented. I believed. I've washed myself. I've cleaned myself up. I look better than I once did. But I've never actually had my heart broken over my sin. 
I've never actually fallen in love with the Son. And so my request of you, as you think of that, listen to John 3.16, and we'll study it next week. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Let me remind you, born again means from above. And this birth is of God. And the regeneration is a divine work of heaven. And this new birth happens to us, not by us. And so we're going to have the opportunity to reflect and respond. We're going to partake in communion. We're going to partake in singing and of worship. And here's the thing. If you've never been to church before, the singing part probably literally makes no sense to you. But here's the thing. If you've been in the church a really long time, it probably doesn't make any sense to you either. Can we just be honest? Because I, I went to the church and they started to sing these songs and I was like, okay, love songs to Jesus. Sounds good. But we, we never actually explain why. See, we were created to respond. There is an initiator that's significantly more important than us, but we were created to be responders to his grace. And so as we partake in communion, as we worship and sing these songs to him, as we look at the words and reflect on what he said through this passage, would you respond in some way? That might be through taking communion, that might be through uh, giving of an offering or dropping maybe the card you filled out in, in the receptacle. It might be that you get on your face. There's room. You can go in the middle. We can go up here. It might be that you stand for the first time. It might be that you raise your hands. It might be that you just sit quietly and reflect on who God is. But I would encourage you to not allow the initiation of the Holy Spirit to be something you don't respond to. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is a lamp unto our feet. God, I pray that as we partake in communion, as we worship you, God, that this would be a time that would bless those in attendance, not because we're worthy of blessing God, but because you give it to us through the uncomparable riches of your grace. And so, God, may we love you more because of your word today. And may we have been equipped to obey you better. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.